This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Asian Insider, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Now, relations between India and Canada have plunged since Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said there were credible allegations that Indian agents killed Sikh separatist Hardeep Singh Nijar in Surrey, British Columbia, earlier this year in June. Gunmen killed Nijar in the parking lot of the Nanak Sikh Gurdwara, the temple, in Surrey, B.C. Nijar was an advocate for Sikh separatism. He was a wanted man in India as leader of the Khalistan Tiger Force. Khalistan is a proposed Sikh homeland the separatists want carved out of the Indian state of Punjab. The campaign for Khalistan was vicious and bloody. In speeches, Nijar would laud the 1984 assassination of then Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi by her Sikh bodyguards in retaliation for the Indian army earlier attacking the Golden Temple in Amritsar, the holiest of Sikh shrines, to eliminate the militant Khalistan leader Jarnel Singh Bindrawale, who was holed up inside it. That assassination triggered a pogrom of Sikhs, mostly across Delhi, and all these events traumatized a generation of Sikhs. Many, many thousands were killed in the course of all this on every side. Now, Canada is home to the largest community of Sikhs outside India, an estimated 780,000. India has long been annoyed that militant separatists like Nijar are tolerated in Canada, keeping alive the cause of a separate Khalistan state and advocating violence to achieve that. Critics say Mr. Trudeau's lack of action against the separatists is due simply to vote bank politics. Sikhs make up a little over 2% of Canada's population. In BC, Sikhs comprise around 6%. In Surrey, where Nijar was killed, Sikhs make up just over 27%. I don't think you would get better people to hear on this very complex issue than my two guests today. Christine Fair is a renowned expert on South Asia, author of numerous books on aspects of South Asia, and professor in the Security Studies Program at the Edmund Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. And Terry Milevsky is a former journalist who wrote the 2021 book, Blood for Blood, 50 Years of the Global Khalistan Project. So let's jump right in. Thank you both for being here. And Professor Fair, may I start with you? From our own reporting, as well as others, it seems quite plain that the movement for Khalistan has very little support on the ground in India's Punjab. But are there any signs or is there any risk that it may regain traction? As you know, I spend um, a lot of time in the Punjab. I translate Punjabi literature. And um, so if you just landed in the Punjab, you might be startled by the what appears to be the prevalence of gun culture. So, for example, it's not uncommon to see AK-47 stickers on cars and rickshaws and so forth. But when you do see pictures of Bindranwale, on cars, and they're not uncommon in the Punjab. And his image, for example, is readily available in the marketplaces near prominent gurdwaras, including the Golden Temple. But you'll notice something really interesting about the pictures of Bindranwale that are on these images. He's not holding an AK, he's holding his tir, which is the large spear. So it's a very different kind of image. So if you just landed, you might think, what in the world is going on? Why is this guy's image being sort of recuperated? And I think the phenomenon is kind of akin to these Western youngsters who disport in Che Guevara t-shirts. So he's, those same people have forgotten, or maybe they never even knew to begin with, more likely that scenario, that Che Guevara was himself a murderous individual, right? So he's become sort of an icon amongst these youth. 
And what's important about these youth is that they were born well after the actual troubles in the Punjab. So you have people my age and above who have nothing but disdain for the idea of Khalistan. And then you have this sort of glossy gun culture that's been recuperated in the Punjab. That, But there's no real substantive support for it. The only support you see is among um, a very small set of diasporan communities that are overall a minority in the large diaspora, but they're very vocal and they're very prominent. But in the Punjab, there's nothing uh, to support this. Mr. Milevsky, how and why is this cause kept alive by the diaspora? Uh, how and why? That's a difficult one because it's, a, it's still a mystery to me and I've been trying to figure it out for about 20 years. The how is that they basically have a culture which advertises a completely unreal image of what's happening in Punjab. Christine has just described being in Punjab. You don't see this overwhelming support for an independent Khalistan that you do in the diaspora because they don't know the reality. It's as simple as that. They do not know the reality. Consider that in Surrey, as you pointed out, where about a quarter of the population or more is of the Sikh faith, they have routinely over the past 20 years more and more been more and more in your face, more and more belligerent in the display, for example, of martyr posters of the famous Air India bomber, the Kanishka bomber, Telvinder Singh Parma, who is the sort of martyr figure that they advertise all over the country in Canada as the mastermind of the Air India bomb plot. It's an extremely bizarre circumstance, isn't it, that this man is held up as a martyr and as a model for Sikh youth. He slaughtered 331 completely innocent civilians in the pursuit, supposedly, of this idea of an independent Khalistan. And you ask, how and why does this idea prosper? And in part, it's because Canada allows it. Canada has been completely tolerant. Canada has normalized the display of what you might call terrorist iconography to include the martyr pictures of uh, Ma, not just in the Langa Hall, but life-size on the outside wall of a major Gurdwara in Surrey. And to include the, more recently, the killer posters, as I call them, identifying, naming, and shaming, showing the photographs of Indian diplomats so as to paint a target in the, on their backs. And more, you may have seen the video of a parade, a so-called Martyrs Parade this year in Brampton, Ontario, which is sort of little Punjab, I guess, area of Ontario, showing and celebrating a life-size diorama illustrating and celebrating the assassination of Indira Gandhi in 1984 uh, with extra red paint splattered on her sari to make sure that kids get the message that this, number one, was a bloody event, and number two, we are proud of it. We'd do it again if we could. Uh, So this worship of the sort of death cult, the martyr cult, this has been successful because Canada puts up with it. We say, hey, freedom of speech. And Indians don't get that at all. You couldn't get away with that, I don't think, anywhere in India. I don't think you could get away with it in Punjab even, where, as you know, the the support is at rock bottom. It's not the case in the diaspora, and particularly where the diaspora is strongest and largest in Canada. 
And that is our problem, is that we've normalized it to a degree that, that everyone's used to it by now. And the political parties, final point, the political parties like it that way because uh, they have a nice little arrangement whereby I will show up when I'm campaigning to your Vaisakhi parade. I will smile and wave as the parade floats go by, and I will look the other way discreetly as the parade floats display the pictures of gun-toting assassins and martyrs. And in return, you will put the word out at the Gurdwara that I'm the guy to vote for. And if I do say, hey, you know, those pictures, I mean, that's, that's, you're celebrating killers here, then those votes are going to go to the other guy, aren't they? So uh, I think I'll just keep my mouth shut. That's the little, that's the vote bank politics that uh, keep it alive. So for all of those reasons, it is still with us. And to this day, I have not heard leading politicians get up and say, okay, we're going to have to have a change in, in Canada. Uh -huh. I'm not going to your Vaisakhi parade as long as those pictures are displayed. I'm not coming to your Gurdwara. I'm not going to even ask for your votes if you're going to show a life-size picture honoring and glorifying a terrorist like Talvinda Palma. That has yet to happen. Okay, that's interesting. Professor Fair, touching, picking up a little bit on what uh, Terry Malevsky just said, you also referred in your recent lawfare piece, you mentioned fundamental differences in Canada and India's priorities, values, and history. Could you unpack that a bit? Could you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, I will. But I, I actually wanted to sort of dilate upon a few issues that Mr. Malevsky raised. So uh -huh. I would say that to really understand this diasporic formation, we have to understand how diasporas work. So you have had this very long-standing Sikh presence in North America that went back to the late 1800s, right? So this is a very old established community. And then when the troubles began that became particularly acute after the Operation Blue Star in June of 1984, mm -hmm. you had an exodus from the Punjab of people who could leave. And so the the Punjabis that went to Canada, the United Kingdom, those were sort of the, the stalwarts of destinations and to some extent the United States as well. What you had was a conflict diaspora. We've seen this similarly with the Tamils who left Sri Lanka after the anti-Tamil pogroms. So they are a very different political creature than, say, the economic migrants uh, that preceded them. And those were the extant communities that they then joined. And so for a conflict diaspora, they have a very different image of mm -hmm. what it was that they were leaving. And their children have inherited this sort of telescopic history. So, you know, I study Punjabi, so I've had a lot of interactions with Punjabi youngsters in diaspora. When you point out that Bindranwale had taken over the Golden Temple, that he had turned the Golden Temple essentially into, I'm forgetting my English, Sangar, a, a, a rampart, a fortress. Yeah. They, they deny- An armed camp, yes. Yeah, they deny that history altogether. And so it's, like I said, for me, the best comparison is Che Guevara. This, because just completely dissociated from reality. He's just this image of opposition, you know, a sort of, David to a Goliath. The second thing about the Sikh religion and history itself is that it lends itself to martyrdom glorification. So you can always tell if you're in a Khalistani Gudwara 
because the traditional Gudwara will have in the Lungar in particular, the sort of historical lineage of Sikh martyrs that primarily focus upon the struggles against different Mughal power centers. But the Khalistanis will append that traditional repertoire of martyrs to include various terrorists associated with 1984 and subsequent events. So the other way in which I've observed that this Khalistan movement continues, because unless you know Gurmukhi or unless you have an encyclopedic knowledge of, of the faces of terrorists, you won't notice it. But I've noticed that in Canada, I've noticed it in the UK, it's less so here. But you have these soccer clubs, for example, and the soccer clubs will be dedicated, a particular tournament will be a martyr, a martyrdom tournament. And if you didn't know any better, you might think these were the historical sick martyrs, but they're not, right? And you also have this circulation of sick religious rhetoricians, for lack of a better word, that are also circulating throughout this diaspora. So I think it's important that we not just isolate Canada, but we have to understand this larger Khalistani diasporic imagination, mm -hmm. and people are circulating within it and throughout it. And curiously, if you follow Khalistani social media sites, they have very little engagement and they have very few numbers. I have more Twitter followers than the most popular Khalistani site. But the other thing that I would draw both of your attention to has been Khalistani rap. I've been following the development of Khalistani music now for decades. I can tell my Alexa, you know, Alexa, play straight out of Khalistan. They're streaming on all of these platforms. Oh, Alexa, stop. <laughs> she, she took me seriously. <laughs> um, and so you have this proliferation of very attractive, high-quality production Khalistani music, and it's available on all platforms. So the how, it's coming through these multiple sources much of it is in person. Some of it is popular culture. And in the same way that there's been this appropriation of Che Guevara, the Khalistanis have completely appropriated the Black musical culture reflecting structural racism. And this is, you take a look at Sidhu Musaywala, for example. I mean, he is just, he has appropriated so much of that musical gestalt, I guess is maybe the best word. But he's weaving in it sort of contemporary themes of purported sick oppression. And it's very potent and it's very effective. Even calling it rap is inappropriate. In the hip hop, the Khalasani hip hop music, sometimes they do explicitly call for violence. But then again, you have to be in that space and you have to be listening to the lyrics. Often they do so through historical analogy. Right. So this is if you look at some of Sidhu Musaywala's oeuvre when he is calling out Delhi, you have to see the visuals of his video along with the music to understand how Delhi might perceive his videos as a threat. But this is all protected speech with the exception of where they're specifically calling for violence. And sick for justice because Panu is a lawyer. He knows how to go right up to that line of free speech. When they put out, for example, a bounty on Lieutenant General Brar's head, the big letters were a bounty. The small letters were for information about his whereabouts. So they do a very superb job of going right up to the limit of where protected speech ends. 
Now, in the United States, we probably have the most freedom, the most protected speech. Other countries, Canada, um, I'm not so familiar with their legal regimes. We know that, for example, in Germany, you're not allowed to be a Holocaust doubter. You're not allowed to call someone a Nazi, even if they are. India, in contrast, has a lot of colonial era speech regulation, and they retained it. And both parties use it to go after their foes. We're seeing Modi use these various speech protections or restrictions to his benefit. But you can have an MNA on the floor of parliament denounce a, a Muslim MNA in the most grotesque of words without consequence. So India has these carve outs that can be mobilized when speech is found to be offensive against an entire community. So this is just fundamentally irresolvable. And from India's point of view, and I can completely understand this, they don't see how you can have a peaceful call for a Khalistan referendum, right? How can the destruction of the Indian state be itself peaceful? But the reality of Western speech protections is that, in fact, that speech is protected. Now, India is also, I have I've spent a lot of time, my primary focus, people may not know this because I do so much work in Urdu and on Pakistan and Pakistani terrorists. But I've spent a lot of time in India, particularly I go to major Gurdwaras. It's not the case that this is not tolerated in India. So during the whole Amrit Paul Fandango, a lot of Khalistani speech was very much tolerated. And this gave rise to a lot of cynicism in the Punjab that Amrit Paul himself was a product of the center because he comes out of nowhere. He says outrageous things. He has this really fabulous Mercedes white convertible sort of recalling Guru Gobind Singh Ji on his white stallion. And so it's not the case that India doesn't tolerate some of this speech. It tolerates this speech selectively. But the lesson that, that we learn from India is that, that it tolerates speech until the center feels its interests are harmed. And they don't understand how it is that Western democracies can't take on India's sentiment. And India also makes, I think, a really important point. And it, the Justin Trudeau issue is also about his father and Pierre Trudeau and how he handled the Kanishka bomber. But what really galls a lot of people in the current Indian government and probably people who don't support Modi is that Justin Trudeau interfered famously in his issuing of support for the farmers protest. But when it came to the truckers protest in Canada, that was a different matter altogether, right? You saw very quickly where the limits of free speech were when it came to the Canadian state. And Indians are adamant that if you want us to be a partner in managing your security concerns in the Indo-Pacific, you have to be a partner in managing ours. And, and on that part, I would say not just Canada, the United States tolerates, tolerates this, the British, the Australians. We are all struggling with how do we contend with India's legitimate security concerns within the constraints of what our governments offer in terms of speech protections. I see. Yeah. And that's why it's been, if I may, yeah. uh, been a kind of dialogue of the deaf now for 40 years between India and Canada in particular, where Indian politicians are banging the table saying, how can you allow this kind of propaganda? Why don't you crack down, lock them up? And the Canadians say, look, it's freedom of speech, it's freedom of speech. And so then the argument becomes, okay, well, where exactly do you draw the line? And Canada, by the way, does have different legislation, whereby in the UK, since the Terror Act of 2006, you cannot glorify terrorism. That's an offense. But in Canada, we don't have that such legislation. So you can. 
And then there's also a more subtle area uh, of disagreement where they're always one step ahead. The Khalistanis are always one step ahead of the law. There's something else they're doing that isn't just as, as crude as glorifying terrorist martyrs, but it's also rewriting history. What they're trying to do within their own community is rewriting history, saying, no, no, it's perfectly fine, for example, to show martyr pictures of Talvindar Parma, the Kanishka bomber, because he was innocent. We're right, rewriting now the history of that Air India bombing, the worst mass murder by far in Canada's history, and the worst ever anywhere until 9-11. We're rewriting that history to indicate that ah, the Indian government blew up its own plane, and they've convinced enough people or they think they have, they, they, haven't re- they don't really examine the details to see how absurd that is. But they're proselytizing, rewriting history, just as they rewrite history, for example, they, they tell their people, I'm quoting Panun, for example, that there has Sikhs are suffering an, an ongoing genocide in India to this day, ever since the time of Indira Gandhi, right up to the time of Narendra Modi, where the Sikhs are being wiped out, apparently all the time in India. And people, young people in the West, in the diaspora, who have never been to India, believe this. So there's something, it's, there's something else than just the iconography that I describe and the showing of pictures of martyrs. There's the rewriting of history, which is toxic because it, it gives a license, or people think it gives them a license to follow the Khalistani path because, no, 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 we're not worshipping mass murderers. No, no, that, it's different. He was innocent. Oh, so now now it's okay. Right. And everything that flows from that is okay. Right. Can I stay with you for a moment? Now, what is the prevailing view in Canada of this rift with India? Has this episode changed anything in Canada in terms of perceptions of Trudeau of India and so forth? Yes, it has. At first, the change is very, very clear to me. At first... People thought that, well, this is terrible. They think that a Canadian citizen would be the victim of some sort of international hit squad, assassins being sent from India to come into Canadian soil. And people sort of had a, had a feeling, well, well this is outrageous, if, if true. Then second phase, is it true? And why aren't we hearing what the evidence is? Third phase, oh, they started to hear what they have been ignoring for 40 years. All of what we've been talking about, the terror, the worship of terrorist martyrs and so forth, this has been off camera, off screen, completely. Canadians haven't been paying attention to it at all. They did a poll uh, earlier this year around the time of the anniversary of the Air India bombing and found that eight out of 10 Canadians didn't have a clue what that was. They completely tuned it out. It's not a happy story. It's old news. It doesn't reflect well on Canada. We don't want to hear about it. And now they start noticing that it's on the front page, and they look and they see, oh, this guy Nijar. You know, we were just only last week, we were appalled that he would be rubbed out supposedly by some international hit squad from India. Now we're listening to what did he say? Can I see that video again, the one where he's praising all the terrorist killers? where he's praising Beyonce uh, Singh's assassins in 1995, the suicide bomber who killed uh, the chief minister of Punjab and 16 innocent bystanders, and the assassins of Indira Gandhi, and the assassins of General Vaidya, and on and on and on and on. Now they see those videos mm-hmm. and they wonder, wait a minute, I- I'm not sure that I'm going to shed any tears for Mr. Nijar. 
and uh, and, and pretty soon it became apparent to me anyway that there were not a few Canadians who agree with many, many Indians that, you know what, if Modi uh, actually did this, good for him if he wiped out a terrorist. Uh, and they, they, they're forgetting about all the principle of international law and whether they want to live in the kind of world where you send hitmen into my country, wipe out your critics, and get away with it. You know, no, we don't. If you ask them, they would probably say no to that question. But there's been a palpable change because having ignored it for so long and looked the other way, now Canadians are noticing, wait a minute, we have been tolerating some pretty bad characters. Okay, very fascinating, fascinating. Now, we have about a couple of minutes left. I'll give you both some parting shots. Christine Fair, you go first. Anything you'd like to surface? Yeah, I guess I would say the legislation regarding glorification of terrorists and so forth. Mm -hmm. I mean, we do have this problem of designation of terrorist groups. So in the United States, as well as the UN Security Council, we have different processes of getting groups declared terrorist organizations. The Indians have been demanding, and I, I presume they've been demanding it of Canada and the United, or excuse me, the United Kingdom as well, that they've been requesting from that the United States officially designate Six for Justice as a terrorist group, right? And we have rebuffed those requests repeatedly, again, because of the freedom of speech issues. Where I come down on this ultimately is that I understand that the Indian judicial process, particularly the ways in which police investigations are conducted in India, and particularly with respect to the Punjab, these abuses have been very well documented. And it's, in fact, those investigations that form the basis of the Interpol red corner notices, right? And so one, one might easily say, sitting here at the Department of Justice and their counterparts elsewhere in Ottawa and in London, that we can't trust these allegations because of the distasteful process that produced them. But I would really push back against that because we're going to have to figure out a way to accommodate India's legitimate security concerns mm. because we expect India to accommodate ours, right? Anyone who knows India uh, knows that it is this failure to be symmetric and reciprocal that antagonizes Delhi deeply, that Delhi is expected to jump through our hoops. But when Delhi asks us to jump through some of their hoops and we decline to do so, that there is a lot of resentment generated. And so I think that we're going to have to find ways of being much more vigilant and taking on these Indian requests Another tool that we have, and to my knowledge, it hasn't been used, is that at least in the United States, we do have laws about taking money from a foreign entity. And many of us have long suspected, although we are incapable of gathering smoking gun evidence because we're not intelligence operatives, that what we've seen over the years is this collusion of Khalistani groups and Kashmiri groups they conduct rallies together. You see them in, in the last several years. You very rarely see Khalistanis without the Kashmiris and vice versa. And the only thing they have in common is the ISI. So I think it's incumbent upon the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, as well as Australia, where these folks are prominent, to use the tools of law enforcement and investigation to look more seriously at these groups. Okay, ISI being uh, Inter-Services Intelligence, Pakistan's uh, intel agency. 
Terry Milevsky, I'll take you back to your television days for a very short parting shot. All right. The propaganda war, the information war, that's the key. That's been running through everything we've been saying here. They've been winning. The Khalistanis have been winning the information war because the West generally has been sitting back and letting it happen. We haven't been pushing back. We've allowed communities, a whole generation in Canada, in the Sikh diaspora, have grown up believing that Sikhs want an independent state. They haven't been to Punjab. They haven't noticed basic facts. Like, for example, in the last election, the only separatist party running got something like 2.5% of the vote and no seats. And the election before that, they got 0.3% of the vote. Nota, none of the above got more votes than the separatists did in the, that Punjab election. So that the whole illusion, the idea of that this referendum and the independent Khalistan is going somewhere really is an illusion. It's going to hit a brick wall one way or the other anyway, because if they don't have a vote in Punjab and India would never tolerate such a thing, then it's going nowhere. You've got a majority in the diaspora. So what? That's a tiny minority of the world Sikhs. 75% of them live in Punjab. So I would say that tackling the illusions, pushing back in the information space, doing some counter-propaganda work is so important because at the moment, the Khalistanis are winning that battle and we need to wake up. Okay, very interesting. I'm glad we did this. Christine Fair, Terry Milevsky, thank you very much indeed for joining me on Asian Insider. That was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That nicely wraps this discussion up for the Asian Insider podcast. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Join me and my expert guests for the next episode on the fourth Friday of every month. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.